0: As you think about the course of human history, have you wondered why it took God so long to enact His plan of salvation revealed in Christ? If salvation through Christ has been God's plan for all eternity, why did He wait so long before sending His Son to live among us? Now that's a difficult question to answer comprehensively. But the book of Hebrews does provide us with some insight as to why the plan of salvation unfolded in the manner it did. It appears that in order for us to better appreciate who Jesus is and to better appreciate what he has come to do, it was necessary for there to be some categories set in place. There needed to be a context, there needed to be a backdrop for us to properly understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So God began by forming a covenant with Israel, which began with Abraham. Then He detailed this covenant through Moses And within the covenant he detailed with Moses, we have important categories set in place. It is in the earlier covenant that we learn that the only way we can have a relationship with God is if we pay careful attention to the terms of the covenant. That is, our relationship with God is dependent upon our obedience to his commands. We learn from the earlier covenant that failure to comply with God's law is sin. And when we sin, our relationship with God is damaged. You you heard a reference in Leviticus 16, and if you were to read backwards, uh, the, the reference was the two sons of Abraham who died. Now, it wasn't some kind of weird accident, but it was they died because God judged how they approached him. That is, the sons of Abraham approached God in a way that was not sanctioned, and a holy God cannot be approached flippantly or in a manner that he does not ordain. So we learn that our sin or our breaking of His law uh, causes a rift or a breach in our relationship. The Old Testament tells us that when we sin, when there's a breach in the relationship, that there needs to be restoration, there needs to be a repairing of the rift. And all kinds of ceremonies are put in place to guide the Israelites back into a relationship with God. Without those categories, without the earlier covenant, I don't know that we would fully understand or that we would properly appreciate what Jesus came to do. The purpose for which he came. I would assert that if you skip the Old Testament, if you never read it, if you just say, well that's a long time ago, I'm just going to jump to the Gospels beginning in Matthew. If you jump to the New Testament... You run the risk of reducing Jesus to just a good teacher. Oh, that he's just a misunderstood religious leader. Or he's just a good moral example. Without the Old Testament categories, we're not going to get Jesus right. We need a context for understanding Jesus. We need a backdrop if we're going to understand why he had to die. And the Old Testament sets this up for us. And the author of Hebrews understood this. And so having already made assertions about the divinity of Jesus and assertions about the humanity of Jesus, the author of Hebrews now connects those assertions to the familiar Old Testament category of the high priest. So we look at Hebrews 5 in particular, and we see some of the qualifications for the high priest this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives an important sampling. First, look at verse 1 in chapter 5. Every high priest is chosen from among men. That is to say, the high priest must be a human being. God could not or did not choose to send an angel to mediate between the covenant, but he wanted the high priest to be human. And this role is a representative one. So the high priest stands in on behalf of the people. So it makes sense that a human being stands in in a representative fashion for other human beings. And we we go on in verse 1. This representative, the high priest, is appointed to act on behalf of humanity in relation to God. And then you keep going in the text, and you see the author tells us that the high priest is also appointed by God. It's a divine appointment. It's not a democratic election to see who will be the high priest. There's no debating on the ancient equivalent to CNN to see who gets to be high priest. There are no primaries or caucuses in play here. God calls his high priest. And one of the specific tasks of the high priest... Was to each year pass from the presence of the people into the innermost part of the temple, known as the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies signified the presence of the Almighty. And the high priest, having made a sacrifice for his own sins, would then make a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. And then the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now if you think it through, you've heard these categories before, but if you think it through, it's quite a gruesome thing. So you're the high priest, okay, you realize, I'm a sinner, I need to sacrifice for my sins... Now I need to represent the people, so I'm going to sacrifice for their sins, and I'm going to take a a basin of this blood, and I'm going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And this was done to symbolically atone for the sins of the people. So the author, when he makes this reference of Jesus being the high priest, he wants us to know that Jesus has taken up this office this Old Testament category from the earlier covenant, and now he's describing how Jesus fills this role. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. So the grand point being made here, or the grand point that's going to be outlined here, is that in Jesus, we have a better high priest. A better high priest than all the high priests that came before him. We have a perfect high priest. You say you had in the previous high priests, individuals who passed from the people into the temple, into the holy of holies, in, and that was to be symbolic of the presence of God. In Jesus... You have him going from the people to the actual presence of God. Not something that represented his presence, but the very presence of God. The previous high priests were limited by their humanity. They were flawed and sinful men. But Jesus is presented as fully God and also fully man. Unlike the previous high priests who needed to sacrifice for their own sins, Jesus is said to be altogether without sin. And again, this is part of what makes him a better high priest, a better representative. Jesus is a better high priest, better high priest than his predecessors in very serious and significant ways. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't so high and lofty that he doesn't sympathize with our predicament. Jesus is said to be very much like his predecessors in his capacity to understand our frailties, to appreciate our vulnerabilities, to understand human limitations. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. The author describes Jesus as a high priest who is very much able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now stop right there. I know we don't like to think of ourselves as weak. But with every year that I add to this body, with every year of experience I gain, I, I gain a greater appreciation of my weaknesses my shortcomings, my vulnerabilities. When I look in a mirror, there is much that I don't like. And I'm not talking about physical appearance. I'm thinking of who I am and what I struggle with. And, And we're told here, Jesus gets it. He knows what you're struggling with. He was in human flesh. He was a human being and He understands what you're going through. Further on we're told, He was one who was in every respect tempted as we are and yet remained without sin. Tempted as we are. Do you believe that? That the struggles you face, the temptations that threaten you to yield, Jesus shared these temptations. This is encouraging stuff. This is comforting stuff. Because if you're at all like me, you're sweating your way through life. You're struggling your way through life that throws all kinds of curveballs and challenges and obstacles your way. And while all of these things threaten to undo us, we open our Bibles and we hear a call to obey. And we're thinking, Lord, I'm just hanging on here. I'm just trying not to drown in these adverse circumstances and you're calling me to perfectly obey your law? We need some assurance that God understands our plight. We need some assurance or some reminder that God really knows what it's like to be a human being with all of our vulnerabilities. Indeed, Jesus is said to have experienced the types of temptations that are common to us. And not once, not once did he give in. I mean, if Jesus had given in eight times or 82 times, we would have said he's still a million times better than any of us. But not once did he yield to temptation. Now I realize there might be a skeptic or someone might want to object and say, well, if Jesus never gave in to temptation can we really say that he knows how difficult it is? If Jesus never sinned, can we really say that he appreciated the full force of sin's tempting ways? Well, the short answer to that question is yes. And C.S. Lewis has written this wonderful quote where he makes the case for why Jesus understands temptation better than any of us. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try and resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind... "...by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means." Jesus gets it. He fully understands what is required to overcome temptation. Jesus ably appreciates human weakness. And the message from Hebrews is that as our high priest, as our representative, Jesus intercedes for the purpose of helping us overcome our weaknesses you see, if you look at the text, it's not just forgiveness that we get from Jesus. We also get assistance from him. We get help. Jesus is a better high priest in that he is able to make available to us the full supply of divine grace. Yes, the cross is is about Jesus atoning for our sin. But there is more than that. Don't limit the cross by reducing it to substitutionary atonement. It is that and more. Because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, the full supply of divine assistance is available to you and to me. To this end... The author of Hebrews implores us. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to break it down bit by bit. It won't take long. First, Let us note: there is a throne to be approached. There is a throne to be approached. And this fact alone should be sufficient to get your attention. Why? Because worldly thrones, thrones on earth, are not readily approached. Have you ever approached an earthly throne? I haven't. I haven't been within two football fields. Probably several hundred miles of of an earthly throne. If I think of it, someone might say, Bryn, you've been much further than that. Earthly thrones are not readily approached. I doubt there is anyone in this sanctuary who has touched an earthly throne. Now, I realize the Queen of England loves the Bahamas, and from time to time she visits or, or sends her, her son or her grandson. And you may, have, you may have even met a member of the royal family. You may have even shook the hand of someone from the royal family. But have you ever touched their throne? Have you ever approached the Queen of England on her throne? Not likely. Those who approach earthly thrones are from a very select group of dignitaries. So I want us to contrast that now with what the author of Hebrews says... He says the king of this universe has a throne that you may approach, that you may touch. You may go to the throne of grace, the throne of the Almighty. You may approach it. But how? How do we do this? If we're to approach the, the throne of the Queen of England, there's all kinds of etiquette and protocol. There's a bunch of do's and there are a bunch of don'ts. Well, how how much more would there be etiquette for approaching the throne of grace? How do we approach it? With trepidation? With hesitation? With dread? How do we approach? No! We're told to draw near to the heavenly throne. With confidence. Are you kidding? With confidence. The Greek could also be translated as boldness. As if to say, don't hesitate. Don't think about it for another minute. Go. Go. You're supposed to go to the throne of the king. How is this possible? How can we approach the throne of God? The God who rules the universe. How can we do this without fear? Because Aaron's sons approached What symbolized God's presence. And they were struck down dead. So how are we going to fare any better? How are we, if we're more flawed or more sinful than Aaron's sons, how do we get close to this throne? We approach the throne of God by way of our perfect high priest. Our representative, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf. Now, there's an invitation, but there is also a warning. The invitation is come to the throne. Go to the throne of God. But the warning is this. Don't go unless you have the mediatorial presence of Jesus. Don't go as Bryn MacPhail. Don't go as you. Go as the Son of God. Made a son by the high priest, Jesus Christ. Our confident approach, our bold approach, is entirely dependent on our connection to Jesus. If we're not connected to Jesus, don't go to the throne. But if you're connected to Jesus, don't stay away from the throne. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, what are you doing away from the throne? What are you doing all on your own? If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, go to the throne. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, the throne is no longer marked by a majesty that overpowers us, but it is now adorned with a grace that assists us. I also want us to note that the throne of grace is distinguished from earthly thrones in another way. If you were ever to get that invitation to go visit the Queen of England, you're ever given an invitation to go into the throne room, would you go empty-handed? No, you would, you would find, you'd take that etiquette class and you would find out oh, what is a suitable tribute to bring to the queen. What is a suitable gift that I could bring into the throne room to, to give to the queen? That's what we do with earthly thrones. But God's throne turns this around. We go to the throne room in heaven empty-handed. And God, our Heavenly Father, gives us the gifts. How much better a kingship is this? How much better a monarchy is this? That we don't hesitate. We don't take, a, we don't take an etiquette class. We don't come with a, a handful of gifts. We go empty-handed. We say we're here because of Jesus the High Priest. And God gives us gifts. It's not a throne for receiving a tribute. It's a throne for dispensing gifts of grace. We're told in chapter 4 verse 16, at the throne of God, that's where you get mercy. You don't get mercy staying away from God. You get mercy when you approach God. You don't get help and assistance and grace when you stay away from God. You get grace, help and assistance when you approach God, when you go to His throne. I love... The way Tim Keller highlights this access when he writes, The only person who dares to wake up the king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child. The only one who dares wake up the king for a glass of water at three in the morning is a child. Tim Keller says we have that kind of access. Friends, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. I realize if you're in church any length of time, you might begin to think, well, in Jesus' name, is that's just some religious tagline that we end our prayers with. It's so it's a signal to people to lift their heads and open their eyes and look at the bulletin once again. No, in Jesus' name is not a tagline. When we pray in Jesus' name, this is what we're doing. We're saying, Father, I have no right to talk to you apart from Jesus. I have no right to make a prayer to you, no right to make an approach to you without Jesus. However, by faith in what Jesus has done for me on the cross, I go to Him for help. I go to the Father in heaven for help, just the way a child asks for a glass of water at night. Because of what Jesus has done, we say, Heavenly Father, I need your help. Heavenly Father, I need you. So you see, because of the work of Jesus, our high priest, we have special access to God. Special access to God, and that gives us a full supply of his grace. But there remains something for us to do. But it's easy, don't worry. There remains something for us to do. To get all the supply of divine grace that I'm talking about, there's something you must do. You've got to go to the throne. You've got to go to the throne of grace. You've got to pray. Without prayer, you deprive yourself of God's help. I think of all the times in my life where I've struggled to do something and I realized at the end, all I had to do was ask for help and it would have got done. What do you need looked after right now? What problem do you need solved? What burden do you need lifted? What hurt do you need healed? There's a good chance God will not fix those things automatically. He will fix those things or he will fix us when we go to him in prayer. So take your burdens, take your pains, and go to the throne of grace and expect sufficient help and assistance in your time of need. And as you go to the throne of grace, remember to give thanks. Give thanks to Jesus Christ, our perfect High Priest. Amen.